Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you with advice and information that empowers you so you make better financial decisions in your life. It's time for me to go back to basics on something called ETFs. I talk about them and fly through, and I have learned recently that I've just confused the daylights out of people by not giving a simple explanation of what they are when you use them as an investment vehicle and when you shouldn't. So I'm going to talk about that. Also, there's a new rule with health insurers that deals with something we've had so many complaints about in our Team Clark Consumer Action Center, where you get free one-on-one advice. And it's about when you can't have something done that you apparently need to have done because the insurer is slow walking approval in plans that require prior approval or denies it without any clear explanation. I want to tell you, there's some help and hope on this front because the cynicism and the internal whistleblowers who have leaked that a lot of insurers deny without even reviewing, just hoping you'll go away. Don't. I'll fill you in. But right now, I want to talk about something that confuses people a lot. For most of us, unless you buy individual stocks, which most people don't do, even if you have people who buy individual stocks, usually it's a small part of what they do. And most of what they do is some kind of fund. And there are three main ways people buy funds. They can buy a mutual fund. They can buy an index fund. Or they can buy an ETF. The fastest growing area of investing is ETF. So let me first start with the two old players, mutual funds. A mutual fund is something where a manager, an investment manager, picks a particular investing style and buys stocks or bonds or both that are geared towards that investing style. And you are paying that professional manager for his or her expertise in picking specific stocks and or bonds and then choosing how much of their portfolio to make that particular stock or bond and when they decide to sell. Increase their position, reduce their position, whatever. You pay a management fee each year that can be substantial for that expertise. That is a method of investing many people do. Now, if you're going to own an actively managed mutual fund, you want to have it inside a 401k or an IRA, not in a traditional investment account, because all the trading that goes on in a regular mutual fund 
can clobber you at tax time. There's even a distribution that can happen each year with a regular mutual fund, which is known as an actively managed mutual fund, that at the end of the year, you can get hit with a big tax bill if it's not held inside an IRA, 401k, or some other kind of sheltered retirement account. So mutual funds used to be everything. Now they're a smaller and smaller part of investing. Because forever ago, a little teeny company started by a guy named Bogle called Vanguard, that's now the world's second largest investment house, came up with this idea for an index fund. And an index fund, instead of having an active manager, they just say, okay, we're going to buy the most popular, historically, it's been the 500 largest stocks in the country. So they would buy the 500, and you'd own a lot of American capitalism that way. Because the 500 largest companies account for a big share of publicly traded investing. So then this index fund, because it has much lower management fees, and because it's not being traded, buying and selling different things all the time, has much more favorable tax treatment. So it can be held inside a retirement account or outside a retirement account. And so that's where it started. Now there's like so many different index funds. You've got the favorable tax treatment, the lower costs, and over time, a simple index fund will almost always beat, when you go out any number of years, almost every actively managed fund out there, because an active fund manager may do well for a little while and look like they're the most brilliant person ever, and then those concentrated bets they make, oops, that doesn't work anymore, and the fund that went up comes back down. An index fund is just so my mentality because I'm the turtle. Slow, although we were told by post on Clark Stinks, I'm actually the tortoise is a better definition. Slow and steady, slow and steady, just like the way I run. So I just am happy to have the average performance of the market. Now, I'm a big fan of wide indexes. So I do the total stock market index is where I have the the base of my money, where I own little pieces of the big companies, mid-sized companies, small companies, all in one. And then I'm a big, big believer in international investing. So I have an international index fund. So that's my thing. You can get by with just a couple of funds. But what's happened in the index fund market is... Now there are so many that are sliced and diced that you're now looking at very, very narrow indexes. I made this mistake once. I bought a Chinese index fund because China was this growing economic power. I was like, well, they're growing much faster than us. I should have a Chinese sector index fund. Wow, did I end up being an idiot? Because... Well, Chinese investments have not done well. Even as the Chinese economy grew and grew and grew, investments in it didn't do well. And I, it was an act of hubris because I'd always had this thing where you go broad and then I went narrow. Stupid on my part. So you had this two-horse race. 
the actively managed funds, and then you had the index funds. Then comes along a third thing called ETFs, exchange-traded funds. And a very small number of companies dominate this market. ETFs are index funds that trade like a stock. And there are advantages in them for long-term holdings or really short holdings. Because you can buy and sell them at will. And now with no trading commissions on buying most stocks, they trade like a stock. You can go in and out as you wish and not suffer from commissions. They have become where market share is moving steadily. The difference between an ETF and an index fund, marginal. In fact, with Vanguard, the same index funds are available pretty much identically as an ETF. The advantage of an ETF over an index fund, often the management fee you pay as a long-term holder will be lower from a lot of companies than the equivalent index fund. So that's really what it's about. And I feel like I've been uh, remiss over the years that I talk about, well, index funds or ETFs without really giving an explanation. That was a quick 35-mile-per-hour windshield survey. If you want to understand it better, I guess the easiest place would be to go to investopedia.com and read the explanation of each of these three things. We actually have an article on ETFs on Clark.com, an explainer. We do. We sure do, and I think it's very good. Well, aren't I an idiot? <laughs> it's all right. Investopedia is great too. You know, we don't mind competition. We want people to learn, but we do have an article specifically on ETFs explaining. We have a lot of good investing content. So, all right. Should we go to some questions? Sure. Joseph in Arizona. After I was just so stupid. No, you got to stop saying that about yourself. People have kids in the car. We don't call ourselves names like that, right? That's not okay. Everybody Th- makes mistakes. I am thick-headed. How's We're that? human beings, thick-headed? right? And Will even you have made investments that you didn't like, right? So you admitted that too. It's good for us to all hear. Yep. Joseph in Arizona says, I may have missed it, but I haven't heard you talk much about Medicare savings accounts. How do they work and are they similar to HSAs? And do you recommend signing up for these? Okay, this is fascinating. I don't know how many years these have existed, there's, there's like um, no one who's ever done a Medicare savings account that I know of, and they are extremely rare as something anybody would ever have knowledge of. So congratulations to you on that. And you're right. A Medicare savings account works like a health savings account. You have to have a high deductible qualifying plan in traditional healthcare, to qualify to have the triple tax advantage health savings account. So a Medicare savings account is the same idea. It is where you have a high deductible health plan for your Medicare, and then you can have the Medicare savings account or what they call a medical savings account. And there is I know it's government, and I, I shouldn't be saying there's something really written clearly, but Medicare.gov has the best explanation I've seen anywhere about how these work. And again, they are very rare, but what happens 
is you go in a Medicare disadvantage plan. It's a high, actually technically known as a Medicare Advantage plan. You go into one where you accept a high deductible that creates your eligibility for the MSA versus the HSA for people who are younger who are not Medicare eligible. And the Medicare.gov explanation is really clear. So if you go to Medicare.gov and put in the search engine MSA, you'll get the full explanation. But again, they are a rare animal. Would you do one? Well, with my health problems? Um, I mean, you don't recommend I'm, the disadvantage plans, as you call them anyway. Yeah, I'm not Medicare eligible, but if I was Medicare eligible, you know, I have enough medical bills that the high deductible plans really work out well for people who never have a medical problem and people who have a lot of need to go to the doctor or hospital. And so it's people in the middle between those two extremes that don't benefit typically from a high deductible plan. But somebody who uh, goes to a lot of doctors versus somebody at the other end, you think I was hypochondriac. No. I work out all the time, but my health is not the greatest. And so for me, it would be a viable option. Nicole in Florida says, I really enjoy your podcast and even find it helps pass the time as I work out in the mornings. So thank you for helping me reach my financial fitness goals as well as my physical fitness goals. My question is about buying furniture. When would you say is a good time to begin looking specifically for sofas? We know there's a huge markup and just want to be ready when the moment is right. So Nicole The quality of furniture made today is vastly inferior. You know how you say, oh, they don't make things like they used to. It's true with furniture. In fact, I just read a story somewhere about how the quality of sofas is so low now that even if you spend thousands and thousands on a sofa, it could be uh, falling apart in 24 months. Now, what my wife does is she buys old sofas, 20-plus-year-old sofas that are made the way sofas used to be made, which is quite robust, buys them used, and then has them recovered. And then you have something that can last, and that's all we've got are those kind. Mm -hmm. Although she was, was talking about how we have one sofa she bought new, And she regrets it because Mm. the thing is falling apart Mm. after, in our case, three and a half years. But that buying a really old one and having it recovered, refabricated, whatever you say, Mm -hmm. is the best way to buy a sofa that will tend to be very high quality and can last, believe it or not, for generations. David in Florida says, Clark, I heard you've been ordered to reduce your sodium intake. And Going that back to my health again. <laughs> you're on the hunt for delicious low-sodium pasta sauce. If Krista hasn't already given you her recommendations or a recipe for homemade sauce, then dig up a March 2023 issue of Consumer Reports. There's an article in the issue covering store-bought pasta sauces and a ratings chart featuring many brands. The two best scoring sauces are low-sodium and have no added sugar. The Silver Palette Low Sodium Marinara, 140 milligrams of sodium, and Victoria Low Sodium Marinara, 120 milligrams. 
both scored 81. Victoria is my favorite pasta sauce. Is it really? They have amazing pasta sauce. So for those of you listening to the audio version of our podcast, you missed what I just did that you could see on our YouTube show. I just took a picture of that. I don't have to go look at the consumer reports now because now I've got the silver palette low sodium and Victoria low sodium. In my phone. And David ends with, I hope this helps. We, the listeners, want you to stay healthy and happy. I sure do, too. Thank you. And I guess this would be an appropriate moment. All right. So I said I've got these health problems. You may or may not know I had uh, December 6th. So now I'm 50-something days old with my new valve. I had uh, my aortic valve had failed and it was going to kill me at any time. And so I had a replacement valve, the Sapien X4, mm-hmm. that, by the way, was $130,000 for the valve. Wow. Somebody asked if you had gotten a discount when you did that segment on the podcast. About I it. thought I would get a discount because I'm part of the FDA research on this. It's not FDA approved yet. And I've got to do testing for 10 years. So anyway, I, I'm doing really well. I have my stamina back. I've been averaging 18,000 steps a day, which I mentioned mm-hmm, a uh, while back yeah. on the podcast. And I feel energetic. I'm not so sleeping great. as well as I did before, mm. but I have a lot more energy at the end of the day. That's awesome. So it's been great. And it was a lifesaver. And I had it through a procedure that if you missed that podcast called TAVR, where instead of doing open heart, which is usually what's done to replace an aortic valve, I was able to have them go through three arteries, and they use robotic-type stuff to repair my heart and put in the new valve. And now I no longer snore. I moo at night because Uh. (laughs) I'm part cow in this new valve, metal, fabric, and cow. So anyway, that's what's going on with me. Coming up ahead, speaking of health too, prior authorizations, which was an issue for my operation, the insurer slow walked approving the operation, which meant that I could have died in the time I was waiting for approval. That cannot happen anymore in many circumstances. I'm going to tell you about the brand new federal rules now in effect when your insurer is playing games with you on authorization. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One of the biggest offenses of the health insurance industry is trying to avoid spending money by having in their plans that you have to have prior authorization for various things. 
and then stalling or denying without really reviewing to try to get you to go away or just pay out of pocket. Or in the most cynical way of looking at it, if it's something really expensive, hoping you die waiting for approval. And this has been something that has been a frustration for doctors for years that insurers, they have to waste a lot of time with their staff trying to get things approved and all that. And it's just a dirty, cynical game that the health insurance industry does. Well, now a new rule reduces for not all the population, but many of us in the United States, reduces the review period for something serious like with my heart operation to 72 hours for something major, otherwise a week. And the insurers now have to be very clear on what the reasons are they denied approval, is a weird way to say something, for something that you want. It is one of the dirtiest things that the health insurance industry does. Know that under many health insurance plans, you are covered by this new rule. Who's not covered by it? If you work for a giant company that self-insures its plans, you are not yet covered by this. But this is true now for people in all those Medicare disadvantaged plans, which have been at the forefront because they're dealing with an older market that often will have people who have very serious health problems. So they stall, they stall, they stall, or deny, deny, deny without any clear explanation of denial. And again, maybe they never actually reviewed it. They just deny it. So now you are covered by this new rule. You work for a smaller company. You're covered by this new rule. If you buy your own health insurance on the healthcare.gov affordable care plan, you buy one of those, you're covered. The biggest hole in this is the big company workers working for a company that all they use the health insurance for is to process claims that are paid by the employer. The insurers take the lead of the company you work for. Hey, our expenses are too high. Let's see what we can do to do some cross control. And a lot of administrators doing these plans think the best way to do this is to delay, 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 deny, deny, deny. So Congress would have to pass a statute requiring those plans as well to have expedited, clear processes for you to be able to get approval, for doctors to be able to get approval, so that somebody doesn't die waiting for that approval to happen. So I'd say this is a great step forward. It's not where we need to be yet, but definitely a great step forward. Okay, this question came in from Daniel in Georgia. My wife and I welcomed a new baby boy to the world in December. Congratulations. Great. I wanted to share a very frustrating situation the hospital put us in. My wife had a C-section. Our son had a short stay in the NICU before he was released. Don't worry, he is happy and healthy. Great. 
The day after he went into the NICU, my wife and I were recovering in the hospital room. Someone from the hospital's finance department came to our room and provided us a, quote, good faith estimate bill and asked us to pay. I needed time to review this estimate. They came back the next day and we paid the amount. Fortunately, the hospital estimated correctly and only charged our out-of-pocket maximum. My question is, how can they do this? Could we have said no and to charge our insurance? This approach felt extremely aggressive, and I'm still upset thinking about it. So this is standard operating procedure in many, if not most, hospitals now that they have uh, billing people who come and visit you in your hospital room and try to get you to sign accepting whatever the estimate is. If you're under the influence of meds, you're recovering from something, you're ill, you don't want to engage with those individuals. You just tell them, you know, now's not a good time. Your thing of taking time to review the bill is brilliant. And no one should ever just look at it and say, okay, and sign. The other thing, if you were there as a loved one, relative or loved one of someone in the hospital, do not sign any financial responsibility form ever, not ever. The bill is the obligation of the individual being treated, not you as a loving brother or sister or mother or son or father or whatever or family friend because you will be signing a form that holds you personally fully legally liable for that bill. Don't do it. Unless it's a minor child. Yes. That's different. Lori in Ohio says, my water bill has a 2.3% convenience fee for paying with a credit card. My question is, is it safer to use a credit card and pay the fee or to give them my bank account information? Thanks for what you've taught me. I listen to you every day. Lori, this kind of thing with the add-on fee is something I actually support. And I want to share something before I answer your question from my recent trip to Australia. Every single business you go to, every 100% by law, when you go to pay for something, screen pops up and it shows if you use American Express, there'll be a 4% surcharge. You use MasterCard, it'll be 3.2. Use Visa, it'll be 2.7. I'm just making up numbers. You pay by cash, there'll be no fee. Uh, You pay by debit card, there's a fee of 0.25 was what I saw at a lot of places. Is the marketplace giving you the information and you making a decision? It's the way we should do things here in the United States because there is a ridiculous, crazy cost for a retailer, restaurant, whoever, taking payment systems, taking a credit card. And you as the consumer should be part of that. And I just love the informed consent of how the Australian system works. I would look at the screen and I carry multiple forms of payment and I'd use my GPay, which is like Apple Pay, but for us Android inferior people use Android. And I would just tap whatever method gave me the lowest cost for paying that way. And so in this case with the water bill, you can... Give them ACH. You can give them access to your checking account, which creates a low-level risk that if there was a dishonest employee at a business, they might obtain your transit number and your 
checking account number. But the risk is so very low that it is a wise choice to pay by ACH rather than to pay the 2.3%. All they're doing is passing off the ripoff fees, passing on to you the ripoff fees that Visa and MasterCard charge. Martha in Georgia says, I have a question about parents who are paying consultants to help their high school athletes get exposure to recruiters who offer scholarships for sports. Is this ethical, and would you do it for one of your children? Well, I don't have to think about that because uh, none of my three kids were star athletes. They all played sports. None were star athletes. So this was never an issue. But this, what you're talking about, has become very common This because of the extreme cost of college now. Parents looking for athletic scholarships is a way to kid get a partial scholarship or in the most extreme wonderful cases gets a full free ride for for college so it's because the stakes table stakes have become so high so the ethical nature you're asking about i i'd say it is ethical but it gives an unfair advantage to people who can afford to pay the consultants to get the exposure to recommend, hey, you know, you're not going to be able to get on with that D1 school, but maybe this this topic, D1 school, maybe this school, we could get you a half scholarship or whatever. Um, it's only because college costs have gone up at three or four times the rate of inflation for now a generation and a half that this has become high stakes poker. And I understand why parents do it. The one tragedy to me, tragedy may be too strong a word to you, but to me, when I was coming up, we all played sports. And we played sports just for a season. Like, you wouldn't do this thing where you'd play only soccer on travel teams and summer leagues and being on two or three teams. Your son was on two teams at once at one point, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I played three different sports a year in school because there was fall, winter, and spring That's what seasons. I did. Yeah. So you, were, you played each sport 10 weeks, and that was it. And that, to me, makes a much more well-rounded kid and reduces the chances of injury. I mean, when you look at the stats, particularly for females, how many are having ACLs playing soccer all year long instead of playing it as a seasonal sport. And so I think we've lost something. We've lost exposure to different things. We're also taking some of the fun out of it for our kids, having them play on all these teams permanently playing all year long. So that's my editorial opinion is that, and it's all about exactly what you're asking is about how to get these kids to the next level as a college athlete. Now, if you have a kid who's highly motivated and this is what he or she wants to do, and they love every day of the year shooting baskets or playing lacrosse or kicking a soccer ball or playing baseball or whatever it is, that's different. But often it's not the kids that get this going. It's the parents that get the kids doing this PERMA thing day after day. And the address you go to is clark.com slash clark stinks 
to post if I'm missing a big part of the picture on this with the high school kids trying to get the scholarships for college. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. Remember, when you have a consumer question, we are here to serve you for free, one-on-one. You can get that one-on-one advice from one of our staffers or volunteers at our Team Clark Consumer Action Center. And you can find out how to reach us at clark.com slash CAC. And never forget what we're about, that you learn ways to save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off.